From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, sex, politics, and the Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists have been at the center of the Trump movement, but now the denomination has been rocked to its core by a massive sex abuse scandal. Can the sex scandal change the Southern Baptists? Sarah Posner will comment. But first, Tuesday was a big day for primaries across America, especially in California. John Nichols has our analysis. That's coming up in a minute. The New York Times analysis of the primaries in California on Tuesday was that, quote, voters delivered a stark warning to the Democratic Party about the potency of law and order as a political message in 2022, close quote. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached him at home today in Madison. John, welcome back. Good to be with you, John. Well, the New York Times pointed to the L.A. mayoral race and the San Francisco recall of progressive prosecutor Chesa Boudin. They're still counting votes in California as we speak here on Wednesday. But let's start with the election of the mayor in L.A. Just to remind our listeners, there's a billionaire real estate developer, Rick Caruso, ran as a pro-police candidate against a black woman, Karen Bass, who started out as a community organizer in South LA, served six terms in Congress where she headed the Congressional Black Caucus. Rick Caruso spent $40 million of his own money in the primary for mayor. I'm sure that's a record. His goal was to get more than 50%, which would get him elected mayor, but he failed to do that. He will be in a runoff with Karen Bass. It looks like he will end up with only about 42% of the vote. That's costing him about $100 a vote, which has to be a record. I looked it up. Biden spent $13 a vote to become president. Karen Bass came in second with 37%. We expect her to pick up most of the vote of the third party candidate, a progressive who's getting about 8%. Uh, so, um, and Karen Bass spent about one eighth of what Rick Caruso spent. Is this what the New York Times, is the New York Times right to call this a stark warning to the Democratic Party? In both LA and San Francisco, you've got a situation where Democrats are contesting Democrats in very Democratic cities. And yeah, they are, they are taking somewhat different stands on the issues. But even within that, I think it's important to, to recognize that you're not talking about a, a complete rejection of criminal justice reform or some embrace of a of a right wing, you know, tough on crime agenda, particularly in San Francisco. What you're talking about is you know, personalities to some extent, people who are not particularly, uh, you know, happy with an individual or with circumstances in their community. To generalize that to the whole nation is always a mistake. And it's particularly a mistake out of L.A. because. The L.A. result suggests, to me at least, as somebody who's watched L.A. politics for a very long time, going back to the Sam Yorty, Tom Bradley days, um, that uh, Karen Bass has a real good chance of winning that mayoral race. Yeah. Um, if Caruso had gotten over 50 percent, if he had really, you know, completely blown the thing out and, and secured it in this 
initial election, well, of course, then I think you could say that that's a powerful signal because, you know, there's no question Caruso ran on a tougher on crime agenda than Bass. But, you know, if, if you recognize what's now likely to happen, and that is that they will face one another in a uh, runoff election where Caruso will continue to spend astronomical amounts of money, but he's probably going to have a hard time upping his numbers much beyond where he's at. Um, and as you suggest, Bass has the ability to bring in support from Kevin DeLeon uh, and from other contenders in the race uh, who got, you know, the, the remainder of the vote. Uh, most of them running on progressive uh, policies, progressive positions. Uh, I think Bass is is welcome, well positioned to make this a very competitive race. So instead of seeing some sort of blowout for the tough on crime agenda in L.A., I think what you really saw was uh, a much more nuanced result. And it's true that Democrats are, do struggle to find the language necessarily to to talk about some of these issues. But at the end of the day, what you see is that in polling and in in results from around the country, there is a lot of support for criminal justice reform and for smart approaches to uh, policies that haven't failed or that haven't worked. And and the one other thing I would suggest to you is um, that in in both L.A. and in San Francisco, you saw incredibly dishonest campaigns by those who were pushing a tough on crime agenda. They were very well funded. And frankly, that dishonesty was often amplified in the media. And surely that had an impact. I, I have no doubt of that. And and this is something that Democrats should learn from this. It doesn't mean that they should abandon their positions. It should it is that they should figure out how to, you know, get the truth out there. That costs money, I know, and that's difficult. It also is confronting the media uh, and saying, you know, hey, you, you need to cover these issues in an honest and realistic way and recognize that much of what you're talking about is if it's localized is really part of a national trend. And you should recognize that national trend rather than simply saying this place is worse because some prosecutor or some candidate, you know, tried to adopt what criminal justice experts tell us are wiser and better approaches. The polls from just before the election showed that Rick Caruso's support was highest among white men, which is not surprising at all. But I was surprised that he also got the support about half of black men, and he had a lead among Latino men. So, I mean, these are all Democrats. Uh, Apparently, men who are Democrats are not eager to vote for a black woman, even a really talented and accomplished one. And this seems ominous for Democrats uh, elsewhere and nationally. Well, I'd be careful with that, John, because again, this was a low turnout election. And so uh, you saw uh, very engaged voters who came out in this this particular election. And yes, that, that polling data is something that Karen Bass and her campaign should look at very closely. And they should recognize that there, look, there's sexism in, in every political campaign, and it's an issue. But it's something that can be addressed. And so if there needs to be a ramping up of messaging uh, that aims particularly toward uh, Black men, toward Latino men, toward particular, any number of particular communities, that's what you do. You know, after you've had you know, a close result in, in an initial race, you come back. And, and you deliver your message in the second race. And uh, I can tell you from reading Hillary Clinton's book about the 2016 campaign, you know, she became aware after that campaign 
of some of the some of the areas where clearly they they should have done more. Uh, and if they had, they might well have gotten a stronger vote from uh, white men and even from white women than they did. And so the thing I would say about this is that Karen Bass has data now that she can use in what will likely be a much higher turnout election uh, to you know, reach out to communities and, and, and if she has a good on the ground mobilization to do well. Uh, so yeah, it's something that, that you know, it's a wake up call, it's, a, it's an alarm bell, it's something you pay attention to, but it's not necessarily something that you should presume is definitional. And there's one other uh, big race in Southern California that bears on this question of ominous warnings to the Democratic uh, Party. The contest for sheriff of L.A. County uh, also uh, involved uh, a tough on crime incumbent. Just to review the situation, the sheriff's deputies control all the parts of L.A. County 10 million people, which do not have their own municipal police departments. So the sheriffs do not patrol city of Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, Long Beach, several others. The sheriffs do patrol everything else from Malibu to West Hollywood to Lancaster up in the high desert to East LA. And for decades, no incumbent sheriff has ever was ever turned out of office in LA. Uh, even though they were incredibly violent, corrupt, uh, really it was a horrible, one of the terrible departments in the United States. But four years ago, L.A. had an open contest for sheriff and reformers united around one guy who promised to end the excessive use of force and reform the department. He got elected, Alex Villanueva. But once in office, he completely betrayed all his promises, turned his back on his voters, and now is running again as a tough-on-law, anti-black, basically, candidate. Um, And the sheriffs on his watch have been as corrupt and violent as ever, and this was our first chance to replace him. Um, He hoped to get to 50%. He got nowhere near 50%. He got about a third of the vote, and he will now be in a runoff with a person promising reforms, the former chief of police of Long Beach named Robert uh, Luna. So there'll be two Latinos competing for one of the biggest police jobs in the country. And if all of the opponents of the corrupt and violent incumbent regime unite around the challenger, uh, maybe we'll get a second chance to fix the LA sheriffs. But that's certainly, again, not a message that law and order candidates win elections. The law and order incumbent sheriff didn't, you know, only got a third in LA County. Yeah, and and I think this is something that we take, you know, from uh, you know a lot of these results. And and here's. Here's something else that's really important to understand here. This was a very low turnout election. Yeah. Uh, you didn't have high turnout uh, because it, statewide races, there weren't that many, you know, high profile races. Newsom, as the governor, you know, looked to be in very good shape and appears to, to be so. And so you're talking about a very low turnout election in which uh, interested parties, right, particularly engaged parties, and that can include um, like a deputies union or something like that can have outsized influence. So logically, as you move toward uh, a higher turnout election in the fall, uh, there's a real good chance that in a lot of these races, you will see a very different pattern of voting. And and I do think that that bodes very well 
for uh, candidates who who are more supportive of criminal justice reform. And, you know, at least that's been the pattern. And so the challenge in California, and this is a challenge also in a number of other states around the country, is that you've got to have a, a huge mobilization this year to get especially younger voters and people from historically disenfranchised communities to the polls and to make sure they can vote easily, that they can cast their ballot, et cetera, et cetera. And um, this is one of the things I've, you know, gospels I've preached for a very long time. uh, And that is that Democrats need to recognize that they pour unimaginable amounts of money into television. They buy TV ads, which I, I think, you know, sometimes they can be effective. I don't deny that. But they often just pile up and people get sick of them and they, you know, yes. they're not always as effective. And if you took a good portion of that money and poured it into real mobilization, uh, which is something, by the way, that uh, some candidates have done with, with great success, I think there's there's great potential to see very different results moving forward in uh, San Francisco, in L.A., and in all sorts of places, because you can't judge everything off a very low turnout election. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we need to say just a word about San Francisco. Chesa Boudin, the progressive prosecutor, lost pretty badly 60 to 40, the recall election there. Chesa Boudin is a wonderful uh, person, a wonderful district attorney, a contributor to the nation, I think we should add. It really is a tragedy for America that he's been turned out of office. Um, The question is whether this has implications uh, outside of San Francisco, and it also makes me wonder. I don't really understand why did he lose so so badly in in San Francisco. I know they blamed him for the increase in crime, but there's been an even much bigger increase in crime in cities that have traditional law and order prosecutors. Yeah, well, again, this is what we we're talking about before: a very dishonest campaign, heavily funded with billionaire money by folks who. Um, want San Francisco to be a very different place than it historically has been politically. And if we recognize that, then, uh, then we have to say, well, let's, let's look beyond San Francisco. Let's look beyond this low, very low turnout election in San Francisco and say, well, what happened in other places? Well, let's look at Alameda County, which is, you know, adjacent, it's right, yeah. right in the same region. And bigger population, by the way, than San Francisco. And right now, a civil rights attorney, Pamela Price, is leading the field in the race for district attorney, right? Somebody who is talking about real reforms and real change. And she's in first place, um, running very strong. And so, uh, you know, I I think that, that what we really need to do is try and break the habit of a lot of our national media uh, to take one result in one place or a couple of results in a couple of places and assume that that can be generalized to every place in the country. In New Mexico, uh, they just had a, a intense primary for state attorney general and a prosecutor out of Albuquerque who has made it at least a part of his name on prosecuting police officers uh, who have done wrong uh, got the nomination and looks to be a front runner for the the November election. You can point to places around the country where uh, not just on Tuesday, this particular Tuesday, but in recent weeks uh, and certainly in recent months where progressive prosecutors, some running for reelection, some running in first races have won and often won big. And so the assumption 
that that one result, which I agree with you, is a tragic result in San Francisco, but one you know very disappointing result is somehow uh, something that we should generalize to the whole country. That's not a proper analysis. It's not realistic. It's not based in reality. Doesn't mean, by the way, John, that Democrats aren't still looking for ways to to talk about criminal justice reform, to deliver the message in the most effective way. That's how, you know, politics is always evolving in that regard. But um, the notion that, that America has suddenly decided that it just wants tough on crime politics and, and you know, tough on crime prosecutors, that's, that, that isn't borne up by results that we see from places like Philadelphia and Chicago and New Mexico and Alameda County. There's one other big political story this week in addition to the primaries, and that is the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at last is going to hold television hearings, live televised hearings, starting on Thursday, June 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern. So after 11 months and more than a thousand interviews, all of which were conducted in private, the committee is ready to share what it knows. Representative Jamie Raskin says these hearings will, quote, blow the roof off the house, close quote. You've done some important reporting in the last couple of days for The Nation magazine about this. What do we know about what they have planned? An extravaganza. Um, get your popcorn. Uh, the, the reality is that they have uh, worked with production folks to actually put something together that uh, they hope, and I think there's a good likelihood, will hold the attention of primetime viewers, uh, you know, over you know, not just this first hearing on Thursday night, but over a series of six hearings. And, uh, and that's appropriate. Look, uh, I know there are going to be people who criticize and say, oh, well, you know, you, this should just be, you know, a basic straight to the fact, straight to the facts. Don't don't uh, don't show us videos. Don't do all the production stuff. Well, it's not how politics works anymore. And it's not how these discussions work. And Donald Trump would be the first person to tell you that. And so what they're going to try to do is to present a, a narrative that is very compelling and that that points ultimately to the central role that Donald Trump played in uh, fomenting an insurrection, a deadly insurrection that that really was and should be described as a coup. And uh, Jamie Raskin said something that was quite compelling the other day, uh, and that was that he believes that when Donald Trump went to bed on the night of January 5th, 2021, Trump believed that events that would transpire in the next 24 hours would assure that he would keep the presidency of the United States. Wow. And so Donald Trump was into the, to the information that Jamie Raskin is talking about, which will be brought out in these hearings, that Donald Trump was of the view that actions would be taken to overturn the results of the, the 2020 election and secure for Trump uh, an unjustified and illegitimate second term as president of the United States. If that is the case, and if they can prove that, um, then we're in a very different territory. It's not a gray area of what Trump knew or did he say the wrong thing. It is a situation where we're really looking at Donald Trump as being a central figure in a conspiracy to launch a what you know political experts refer to as a self-coup, i.e. a sitting member or sitting person in power uh, uses their position in order to retain that power illegitimately. 
So that's going to be Thursday, June 9th, 8 p.m. Eastern. The second one will be Monday, June 13th at 10 a.m. Eastern. There will be more, maybe as many as eight throughout mm -hmm. June with a final hearing, I understand, in September, leading right up to the, the midterm elections. And most major TV news networks will be airing at least Thursday's broadcast. Uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN plan to. The only one that doesn't plan to run the whole thing live is Fox News. Uh, so we got, we're going to have some TV to watch on, on Thursday night. Yeah, I think we will. And it's shocking that Fox isn't going to run it. Uh, but look, here's, here's the, the important thing. Um, hearings of this, core, of this sort uh, can go one of two ways. They can go the way of the Watergate hearings in 1973, um, which were very compelling and which ultimately uh, framed the case that led to Richard Nixon's resignation and to the passage of sweeping campaign finance and ethics reforms. Or they can go the way of the Iran-Contra hearings in 1987, which uh, were essentially hijacked by the right and uh, ended up you know, not really making a compelling case or an effective enough case uh, against Ronald Reagan and people around him and ultimately did not lead to a lot of you know, meaningful change as regards how the government operated, especially in some foreign policy areas. And so this is, this is high stakes stuff. These hearings matter because if they deliver their message effectively, if they do it in the right way, and if they move toward compelling recommendations for what can and should be done to address the problems, the crises that will be exposed, um, this can be a big deal. It can be a, a pivotal moment in American history. On the other hand, if, uh, if they're not compelling, if people lose interest in them, if they just don't deliver, um, then in, in a real sense, there's a possibility that Trump and the right are strengthened. And so, uh, I think that Jamie Raskin and others know that they are entering into a, a really vital, critical juncture for the United States. And uh, in talking to folks, my sense is that they're they're prepared for it, uh, and they they know what they know what's at stake, and they are going to make a, a a genuine stand for democracy. They know what's at stake. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, thanks for talking with us today. Pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Southern Baptists have been at the center of the Trump movement and a key force in right-wing Republican politics going back to the 1980s. But now the denomination has been rocked to its core by a massive sex abuse scandal which has implicated some of the most important political activists in the church's leadership. Could the sex scandal change the Southern Baptists? For comment and analysis, we turn to Sarah Posner. She's the author of the book Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. Sarah's a reporter with Type Investigations. Her reporting and analysis on the religious right in Republican politics has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and The Nation. Sarah Posner, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, first of all, 
tell us the brief facts about the Southern Baptist sex abuse scandal. When did the first reports appear and how long were they covered up? They were covered up for many years, in some instances, decades. Um, But this was all instigated by a 2019 uh, investigative reporting by the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express News. These reporters spent years investigating the claims of people who had been subject to uh, sexual assault and sexual abuse by Southern Baptist church employees, leaders, etc., Um, And that massive investigative report prompted, after some wrangling, it wasn't an immediate prompting, uh, the denomination to to hire an outside consulting organization to prepare a report for them. And that report came out last month. It was just absolutely explosive, detailed um, the the widespread uh, sexual abuse of uh, of adults and children uh, by Southern Baptist uh, church employees and pastors, and that the denomination basically covered it up, knew about it, had kept a database in their um, central offices uh, that they compiled on their own from Google searches, uh, searched Southern Baptist and arrested um, to <laughs> compile their own database that they kept secret. Um, and this was uh, this was notwithstanding the fact that there were a number of women in particular who had uh, tried to raise this issue and get the denomination to pay attention. But it was obvious from public statements and the report itself that leaders were seeking to protect the denomination from negative publicity and also legal liability and had really pretty much kept this under wraps for a really long time. So let me underline here, the search was for arrests in Southern Baptist. That is, these were criminal charges brought against pastors and other church employees and leaders, not just internal complaints. Right. Those weren't the only things in the database, but that's how they compiled the database. And and what are the numbers here? How many complaints did the report come up on involving how many pastors and church officials and employees? I think it was uh, 700 instances of abuse and about 300 church employees. And what happened to the people who filed complaints internally with, with their church leaders? What were they told? One of the really disturbing aspects of of this entire episode is how the survivors of this abuse and assault were treated when they went internally to report these things. Some of them were told um, that they were of the devil. One mother who called a, a very you know prominent church to complain about her teenage daughter who had been um, assaulted was hung up on. Um, this was very much treated as you know you're you're the problem if you're raising these kinds of concerns, um, and we're not going to deal with them. Now the Southern Baptist Church leaders have said they are not a hierarchical organization like the Catholic Church. They don't have a centralized leadership with the power to force churches to report abuses to a central registry. There's no policy churchwide of consulting a registry when doing hiring decisions. Local churches are autonomous, and so it was very difficult for the church leaders to monitor, keep track of, and assemble information about this. How much of this is true? Well, it is true that structurally the Southern Baptist Convention is not like the Catholic Church. They do not have a pope. Uh, They do not have the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops equivalent. And, And also, 
each church, the 47,000 some Southern Baptist churches in the United States do not interact in the same way as Catholic churches do with, in terms of having, you know, there's the parish and there's the diocese and there's the, you know, that's what they're referring to. But the idea that the denomination is powerless to compel churches to ensure that people who attend their churches are not subject to sexual abuse and sexual assault is pretty cowardly because they do have a structure. They have an executive committee. They have a president. They have other officers of the denomination. And they have lawyers. And they have lawyers, right. <laughs> um, and they were really, uh, there was a whole controversy a couple of years ago when they were deciding to do this outside report uh, about whether they should waive the attorney-client privilege so that the attorneys could talk to the outside investigators. And ultimately they did, but there was a lot of resistance to that. And so, you know, they had the power to do that. They had the power to hide this for so long from, from the Southern Baptist faithful. Um, so if they had the power to do that, then they probably have the power to compel the churches to at least do the kinds of background checks that any employer would do. You know, one of the things that came out in the Houston Chronicles reporting was how much churches just relied on a potential employee, a prospective employee's profession of their uh, of their faith in Jesus Christ as a job requirement, as a job prerequisite without investigating other aspects of this person's background. When I think of the Southern Baptists and white evangelicals in, in general, I think of their opposition to abortion. Would you say there seems to be a connection between opposition to reproductive rights and tolerance for sexual abuse? Well, I think that what's happening here is a certain point of view about women and gender roles and whether uh, women should be believed or trusted when they accuse a powerful man of a misdeed. And so in the same way that they don't think women should have agency or control over their own bodies, they have looked the other way or, or basically covered up the way that male pastors and other employees have used and abused their positions of authority to, um, to abuse and even assault women. And, and I would add, too, that not all the cases of uh, sexual abuse and sexual assault in the Southern Baptist Convention have been against women. There have been male uh, survivors as well. Let's talk about the political background here. I, I said in my introduction that, you know, the Southern Baptists are well known for their political activism. Is there any connection between the people charged with sexual abuse and the political activists in the church? Well, absolutely. So in the late 1970s and early 1980s, there were two figures in the Southern Baptist Convention who plotted um, what was called a conservative takeover, or in the words of the people who were carrying it out, a conservative resurgence within the convention. They believed that the Southern Baptist Convention and its seminaries had become these hotbeds of liberal ideas, um, and they needed to take it back for this conservative, literalist view of the Bible. Um, and the two people who set out to do that, you know, this is a very deliberate plan on, on, these, two, on these two men's part. 
um, were Paige Patterson, um, who is a very was a very prominent Southern uh, Baptist theologian, and Paul Pressler, who came from a prominent uh, Southern Baptist family and was um, at the time a state court judge in Texas and um, also had been a state representative in Texas. And these two plotted the conservative resurgence, which was a very key part of the religious right because the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the country and a very central feature of, of the religious right, even as other evangelicals are part of the religious right and Catholics part of the religious right. Um, so these two are central key figures in that conservative, they are the drivers of the conservative resurgence. It cannot be overstated. And in the past four years or so, it has come out that both of them um, have uh, engaged in sexual abuse of people within their, you know, under their authority or employee. So Pressler, you know, who crusaded against abortion and homosexuality um, has been accused of numerous men of raping them over many, of many, many year period. And Patterson was removed from his position at a Southern Baptist um, seminary in 2018 after having been accused of sexually abusing women and also wanting to break, quote unquote, um, a woman who um, had been a victim of, of sexual assault. Uh, so you look at this, these were the drivers of this conservative resurgence, as they call it, based on their claim that a literal interpretation of the Bible is, you know, against abortion, against homosexuality, for traditional gender roles and wifely submission to their husbands. Um, and these two figures for many, many years were involved in participating in and covering up sexual abuse within the denomination. And sexual abuse of both men by other men, by themselves, and women. Yes. So, if the two men chiefly responsible for this so-called right-wing resurgence are, have both been discredited and dismissed because of their sexual misconduct, might that affect the political direction uh, of the church? Are there other leaders who have any politically different stance? Or, or do people who dissented from this political thing uh, all leave the Southern Baptist Church? Well, similarly to how this conservative resurgence played out in the 80s, people who dissent are basically forced out. Uh, so some very prominent people who either left or left because conditions had become so intolerable for them were um, Beth Moore, who is a very popular uh, television and speaker and um, and author, very popular among evangelical women who are sort of looking for a more feminist take, although I would not, most secular feminists would not consider Beth Moore a feminist, but just saying. And so she left uh, over the sexual abuse scandal, but also because uh, the Southern Baptist Convention refuses to allow women to preach from the pulpit. And, you know, she made a very public stand about, you know, why, why should she, a Southern Baptist woman who is very experienced in preaching, be able to preach from the pulpit? Um, and so that was one example. And another very prominent example is Russell Moore, who's no relation to Beth Moore, um, who was the head of the denomination's Ethics and Li uh, Religious Liberty Commission, which is basically the denomination's public policy arm in Washington, D.C. And Russell Moore uh, left recently because he was so shaken by finding out about the sexual abuse and also just the inaction 
and cover-up by denominational leaders. You know, I would not say that either of them are any, they're not liberals, right? I mean, Russell Moore would not describe himself as a liberal at all. He would self-identify as a conservative. He agrees with the stance on homosexuality and abortion and, uh, you know, wifely submission and what's called gender complementarianism uh, of the denomination. Um, So here's somebody who has been the face of the Southern Baptist Convention for you know a number of years because of his role at the Ethics and uh, Religious Liberty Commission, but he was strongly disliked uh, by many people within the denomination, in part because he stood up on these on these um, sexual abuse issues, but also he was a very harsh critic of former President Trump, and he he became unwelcome. You said he would not call himself a liberal, but I was a little surprised to see that a significant minority of evangelicals and Southern Baptists do call themselves liberals. I think it's, what, 20% across the board and something like 10% of Southern Baptists call themselves liberal. What, what do we know about these people and, and what do they mean? We do know and we have known for a number of years that about 20% of white evangelicals consider themselves Democrats or leaning Democratic. Um, that's why you see, you know, uh, in the past, however many election cycles, whether it's Mitt Romney or Donald Trump, um, that the Republican nominee gets, you know, roughly, you know, 79, 80 or so percent of the white evangelical vote. That's been pretty that's been pretty static for a number of years. Also, I guess I would ask, you know, for the ones who self-identified as liberals, what factors lead them to self-identify as liberals? And also what factors lead them to self-identify as Southern Baptists? Because there are people who were raised Southern Baptists. They kind of drifted away from it. But if they got called up by a pollster and they were asked their religion, they would say, I'm a Southern Baptist, you know, kind of reflexively. So there's a lot of factors going on here. It's not any real indication that white evangelicals in America are about to take some sharp left turn, which is something I think a lot of people have been wanting and waiting for for many years. It's that sort of perennial question, is the religious right dead? And if anything showed us that that was not the case, it was the presidency of Donald Trump. <laughs> so um, so I, I think it's that's been a kind of static um, situation for quite some time. And I don't think it really signals any any significant change in in where white evangelicals stand politically in this country. Sarah Posner, she's a reporter who covers the religious right in Republican politics, and she's the author of the book Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. Sarah, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. 
and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.